Children are dismissed back to Praise Factory. If you've uh, got your Bible or your Bible's on your phone, uh, open to Psalm 85. We'll be reading from, from there this morning. And uh, we're going to spend some time in God's Word. So if you turn to Psalm 85, we'll read from there. My wife is in Praise Factory this morning, and I know that she's going to be battling with uh, dozens of sticky mittens flying all over the place. So, um, you know, I think of these things, and then I think of the consequences later. So we shall, we shall see. Um, <laughs> well, let's, um, let's read, and then we're going to ask the Lord to, uh, to bless our time. Uh, let me just say this, too. Uh, I am thankful, even though there was two or three questions, will we be having services? Um, I, I thought, let's just go for it. And so uh, thank you. Thank you for coming and, uh, and showing the, uh, the value of this community, of gathering to hear the word and, and the value of, of, of gathering to worship God together. Uh, so um, we always make jokes. When, when we arrive on snow days about these are the faithful ones and this and that. And um, that's not the intent in saying that. Uh, I think that, that too often uh, a little bit of snow makes us cancel our plans when, uh, when it's perfectly safe to come out. So thank you for, for gathering this morning. Uh, Psalm 85, the writer says this, Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what the Lord God will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. Let's pray. Father, we come before you to ask your blessing on our time in your word. You have given us your word for a purpose. You've given it to us that we might know your mind and your thoughts. We have a way of changing things and shaping things according to our ideas or our values or our place in history or our circumstances or the, the trends of our, our culture. But Lord, your word is fixed. 
and permanent. And therefore, we can go back to it over and over and revisit it as an anchor. As we think about your coming into the world in flesh to take sin upon you and go to the cross, Father, we pray that you would help us to understand your intent and your heart as we consider our own acceptability before you, as we think about who we are in your eyes, we pray that we would build our identity on your word, that our thinking would be shaped by your word, and that we would not shape your word based on our thinking. We want to conform to what you say about us, not to try to force you into our image, which would be idolatry. And so we pray your grace on our time in your word now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, as we uh, consider the scriptures, um, it, it occurs to me that, that many of the conversations that I have, these aren't, these aren't hallway conversations in the church uh, necessarily. Sometimes we get into it a little bit in, in, in Bible study. We, we dip our, our toe into uh, the, the, the shallow end of the pool when we, when we discuss this, this issue, it's, it's mostly in private conversations that, that people feel free to, to, to let loose or to unpack the fact that they often have questions about their acceptability before God. Uh, that, that, that they understand the basic principles of the faith. They understand, as, as, as Jerry was saying earlier when he, when he collected the offering, that we are forgiven of our sins because of the death of Jesus. We, that's, that's basic. And, and many times we get that. But what we don't get or don't understand or struggle with is our sense of acceptability before God. Am I, does God like me? Right? And this is something that people struggle with on a deep level. Uh, sometimes people have a difficult time getting past it. Uh, so I want to talk about that this morning. Many of you have talked to me about this issue in different times and on different occasions. We have a tendency, if, we've, if we feel that God does not accept us, and I would venture to say that everybody who thinks about the Christian life and thinks about their own actions strays into this territory where they say, I don't think God would be very pleased with me right now, or I don't understand how God could show me this grace and this kindness. I don't understand how he maintains his grace and kindness toward me. Uh, and not necessarily from a thinking perspective, because they've got all their gospel facts in order. It's their feeling or their appropriation of it. Does that make sense? They struggle with that. And so what we do is we hide behind the false self. We say, I will be perfect in my actions or perfect in my speech or I will give uh, in, in great measure or I will serve or I will do this or I will do that. I'll, I'll live out a grand mission for my life. I will accomplish something great for God. And these are all good things if they flow from the true self that understands the grace of God and understands that we can't earn salvation. 
and that we're responding to the grace of God by doing good. But if we're doing those things so that at the core we say, and now God will finally accept me and love me, then we're just off the mark. We're missing the, the, the target. We're thinking about God as God and not as Father. It's okay to think of God as God. We ought to think of him that way, as the exalted sovereign ruler of the universe. But if we don't include ideas about Father, or we attach our misdirected ideas or our, our you know, complicated, dysfunctional ideas about dad. And uh, you know, to some degree, we all have that because we have all interacted with sinful people throughout our life. If we, don't, if we don't attach a biblical view of who God is as Father, we will constantly struggle with a need and a desire to please, and we will always think of ourselves as failures. I want to talk about what God is doing and what Advent teaches us, and I want to do it through the lens of Psalm 85. We see first, in the first three verses, God's past actions, okay? Look at what the the scriptures say there. In the past, there has been favor. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. In the past, in the biblical narrative, there has been favor. Adam and Eve dwelled at peace with the Lord in their home. They dwelled at peace in the land and with, in, in union with God. They fell into sin and were driven from the garden. We see the story move forward to where the people are in captivity in Egypt and separated from God. But what does God do? He comes and he delivers them and he brings them to a home. And there is peace and favor in the land. They sin and struggle, but God disciplines them and and brings them along and gives them a king, a man after God's own heart. And that man leads a renaissance of, of peace and favor in God's eyes to the point where they build a temple and the presence of God comes and makes himself at home among them. And there is favor. But there is always sin that ruins everything. Sin comes and they're driven from the garden. Sin comes and the people are punished and enslaved and they need to be delivered by judges. Sin comes even to that beautiful country where the presence of God was living and the temple is destroyed and the people are taken away into captivity. But God promises them after he destroys the temple through the Babylonians and they're drawn off by the the northern kingdom is taken away by the Assyrians and then just a couple hundred years later the southern kingdom is taken away by the Babylonians. God promises them that he will show them favor and they will be coming back to the land at some point. He will be favorable to them. 
There was a, a worship song built on Psalm 126 a, a couple of years ago that, uh, that didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. This is probably 10, 15 years ago because I didn't understand the narrative of the Bible. You may, you may remember the song when I'm reading the psalm, but, but think about the fact that, that people had been promised this land and they, they inherited the land and then because of their sinfulness, they were drawn away and taken to captivity. 70 years, their parents and their grandparents died and then they were given the opportunity to go back to the land they had been given by God. They're going back to the homes that their ancestors had lived in. They're going back to their old fields. They're going back to their old cities and ways of life. This is what they say in Psalm 126 about their restoration. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, when, when God gives back the blessing of Jerusalem, we were like those who dream. Think about that. They're leaving captivity and going home, and they're like, is this really happening? You ever had that kind of experience where you're like, this, this, I'm going to wake up any minute. This can't be true. It's too good to be true, we say. Verse 2, then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. They're going back to their land. They're going back to their inheritance. And this is what they say. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears. Think about it. They're going back into their fields to grow the first crops. And they're thinking about all the years that they've been away and all the years that they've been out of the favor of God and they're sowing seed in the ground in tears, thinking about all the waste. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with them. They understand that though they were alienated from God because of their sin, that God's gracious action has restored their land to them. And they're back and they're weeping over their past actions and they're weeping over their sins. But they know that in a couple of months, the harvest is going to come in and they're going to bring all that grain back in and they're going to be joyful and thrilled at the favor of God on their lives. Why? How? These are sinful people. They fail in God's sight over and over and over again. When I, when I go to Africa and I teach this, this class that I teach, uh, one of the things that I try to do, and I've probably said this before, at, at this point in my life, like, I'm not sure who I've told what, so I think I just repeat stories over and over again. Maybe that's true. You could do this thing. You could be like, oh, we've heard this twice. We've heard this three times. It's cool. I won't. Um, Anyway, let me tell my story. Don't do that. That's rude. When I, when, I, when I teach a class, the thing I spend the first three or four days trying to do is to demonstrate that all the people that, that my, my students have been told through moralistic preaching, they've been told and taught by pastors to be more like Abraham, to be more like Daniel, to be more like David, to be more like Moses, right? Effort will save you is what they're being taught in church. They're being told, be good. That's what they're being told. Be like, maybe this is what you were told in Sunday school. And then you eventually learn, like, that's not the gospel. The gospel is not be good and God will love you. The gospel is 
You're not good enough. And Jesus must be your righteousness. And so this is what I do. I spend the first three or four days demonstrating how bad all the Bible characters are. And the students, like, they leave class, like, the third day, and they're, like, ready to just choke me, you know? Because I'm like, Abraham's no good. And I point out Abraham's sins. And then I'm like, David? David, be more like David, right? You've heard that. You're all like, David's not good. He's the, one of the baddest. Jacob, right? Jacob is a dog. This guy is the worst, right? How can God be good to these people when they have sinned over and over? How can he take these people who were so sinful that the image that, that, is, that is given is that of a, of a bucket, that, that the iniquity and or the, 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 yeah, the iniquity of the people is slowly filling up over and over and over again until a point where it, it is so full and there is no rescue and God's wrath must be poured out on them because his wrath is full. And the temple is destroyed and the people are taken away. How can God be good to them? Because it's his nature and his character to be good. Because God is a creative God. He is a maker, and he makes the world. And then once the world falls into sin, what he is doing, he is, he is making peace, and he is making home. He creates peace. Listen, don't hear what I'm not saying. God, in our conception, punishes evil and destroys wickedness. But Father creates home. Father makes peace. Father builds family. He does what he does because that's who he is. Look at the first three verses of this psalm. There are six gracious actions here. He was favorable to the land. He restored the fortunes of Jacob. He forgave the iniquity. He covered their sin. He withdrew his wrath. He turned from his anger. Why is this so important for us? Because if we understand God's past actions and we understand God's attitude towards people in history, you know, we'll understand the way that he's going to act toward us in our story. Does that make sense? He's not going to treat us differently than he treated those people. We're kind of like them. We're a lot like them. God's past actions. He is a gracious God who creates peace and creates home because that is what Father does. And so we move to the psalmist's request in the present. I'm not sure what's going on. We're not given any clues, but something's wrong and they're struggling. The people are in despair or they're in sin or they're under God's discipline. The psalmist cries out, would you restore us? Uh, you know, you grow up in a home and you are given a model of conflict management, right? You know, how, how when there's trouble, how you handle it. Um, my family, love my family, good family, but like both of uh, my, my parents' sides, uh, they kind of dealt with conflict by not dealing with conflict. You know, you avoid it, you dodge it, 
you don't invite the troubling people to weddings, you know, you do the, you know, you just, you just kind of, you manage conflict by uh, erasing it. Uh, you give the cold shoulder or you're distant and then somebody eventually is like, is something wrong? And then like carefully, gingerly, you resolve conflict. Uh, that's one way of dealing with conflict. It's not a particularly good one. I was amazed when I started hanging around my wife's family to watch the way that they handled their conflict. <laughs> they just dealt with stuff. We were at, we were at Christmas Eve uh, dinner one night, and, uh, and, and two of the family members had been squabbling and arguing, and the, 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 one of the squabblers was already in the, the, the main room. I'm going I'm to try to be light on detail here, <laughs> but, but, but the other squabbler walked in, and Nancy's aunt was just like, hey, you, look who turned up. Like, when are we finally going to talk about this, right? You know, just right in the middle of family dinner. And I was like, you know, in my, in my family, this is like record scratch. Like, you know, everybody stops. And I was like, everybody else, nobody's batted an eye. They were just like, oh, they're going to have it out, you know. And the two of them talked. And by the end of the night, they were like hugging each other. And they brought each other presents and stuff. And I'm like, that's healthy. They just moved and addressed it. Like, wow, and it's over? Wow, this is like a 25-year fight in my family. <laughs> not me. Not, 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 not in my, my immediate family, but in like the extended family, it's like, oh no, they, they, they did me dirty and now they're going to pay for it the rest of their life. And I was like, I'm going to be more like that and less like that. This is, this is what I want. Look at what the psalmist does, right? He, he looks at God's past actions, and then he's just going to address whatever the source of the present discomfort is. He's like, you know what? I don't like the distance that I feel or see. I'm not, I'm not loving this. Restore us. Whatever is, is bringing your wrath and your, your, your punishment upon us, restore us. He calls out, to the God of our salvation and says, help us, please forgive us, revive us. Are you going to be angry with us forever? Is your anger going to continually burn? Revive us that we'll have joy again, right? Think, think about it. When you're in conflict with somebody that you love, right, when you've got like the the distance is there, and the walls are up, right? This is not about, this is not about technicalities anymore, right? It's not like, it's, 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 it's not like uh, you did this to me, and I did this to you. Can we just agree that we were each wrong, and then, you know, like, and, and then forgiveness can flow? No, what you want is the relationship back, don't you? You want, you want the, the warmness and the openness to come back. You want the connection back. You want the relationship back. You don't want to necessarily deal with, oh, this happened, then this happened, then this happened, and now we're here. You're like, I want here to go away and get back to where we were, connected. You're our father. We're your children. We want our joy in our relationship back. Restore us, he says. Show us the steadfast love you showed to your people. Isn't that what we want when we think of our relationship with God? We want to know that he's not going to cast us away for our sins, that he's going to stick to us like he promised. 
What if you knew that you knew that you knew that God loved you? Let me encourage you this. You need to build your sense of understanding of who God is and his attitude towards you based on something stronger than your experience with other human beings or your best thoughts on the subject. Because it's our best thinking on the subject that causes the trouble and gets in the way. Does that make sense? It's our, it's our theology of who God is that we construct out of our experiences with other people and our best thoughts on the subject that mess up our perception of who God is. What the psalmist will say in verse 8 is this, let me hear what the Lord God will speak. Right? God's past actions our present situation, and then what the psalmist is saying is, now I want to hear God's words on this subject because that's what I'm going to build my thinking and my behavior on, not my experience with other people, not my best thinking on the subject. I want to hear words from God's lips. What if you knew that you knew that you knew that God truly loved you and was pleased with you? What would that change? I don't think that the next few sentences are going to dramatically alter your life, although they are going to be from God's word. Let me say why I say that. What I think you need to do is you need to do the hard work of taking these truths. If you struggle in this area, you need to take the truths that are said and you need to fight through all the other junk and make sure that the foundation of God's attitude towards you is built on the word and not on that junk. That junk needs to be cleared out. That's something nobody can do for you. You and the spirit of God laying hold of the word have to work through that together. I said earlier that I taught my class that David is one of the big bads of the Bible, right? And he's a bad man. He does bad stuff does some foolish things, hurts a lot of people. But God's attitude is one of restoration and care, of grace and mercy. We find over in the book of Isaiah in chapter 5, we hear this promise from God to anyone who will listen and come to him. Listen to this, Isaiah 55, 3. Incline your ear and come to me, right? Incline your ear is like, what? What are you saying? You know, you, you, can, you can tell. Like when somebody's totally ignoring you, you're like, hey, hey, and they remain motionless. Like if somebody moves when you're, you're like, hey, you know, and they, they move their head, you know, like you know that they hear you, right? You're, you're, you're connecting. So what he says here is incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. That's a powerful verse. If we incline our ear and come to him, if we hear him, he'll make with us an everlasting covenant, his steadfast, sure love for David. Let me tell you what, you look at the scriptures, when did God leave or depart from David or abandon him? Never, never, never. 
And David did crazy, terrible things. Martin Luther says this, the love of man comes into existence through that which is pleasing to it. We tend to set our affections on people and consider people in our lives to be good or bad based on whether their actions towards us are what we like. You know what I mean? Like, you know, you, you, you see someone's behavior and you're like, I like that. And then we love that person. We love qualities in them. The love of man comes into existence through that which is pleasing to it. But then he says this, the love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. Our struggle so often is that we say, how can God love me if I am like this? What if God just loves us? Because his love doesn't work like our love. His love can set its affection on an enemy. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still enemies, God sent his son. God sets his affections on us, and then we have value. He agreed prior to us doing anything good. He agreed to take on flesh and to bear our burden of sin and to take it to the cross that we might be free from our sins. He purchases the assurance of forgiveness and acceptability before God. Is this the way that this, this, this works? We can't, just, we can't just make things up, right? We can't just base this on our, our good thoughts or our, our best intentions or what we desire the universe to be because our best intentions don't change the way things are. They have to be written into the laws of the universe by God. Sincerity changes nothing. I'll tell you, years ago, I can't remember where I was. I think this was still in, in college. I had gotten a, a, a can of Coke out of the... Um, the vending machine in the lobby of my dorm, and then I'd gone outside, and this is back when people still smoked everywhere, you know, there were no, like, you didn't have to, like, go and sit on a bench somewhere, and I grabbed a can of Coca-Cola that people had been putting their cigarette down in. I thought it was mine. I did. I sincerely thought it was mine, you know. I was like, I was like, that's, that's mine, right? You know, everybody was like, tss, 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 you know. And, and, you know, it made it to my lips, and some of it made it into my mouth. And it was like, right, sincerity changes nothing. I wanted it to be my soda, you know? It doesn't change the fabric of the universe. It either is or it isn't. Is this really the way that God acts? Is this the way that he functions? Is he really like this? Because our struggle in front of God with God for our acceptability, we constantly think, but no, I'm that. No, I'm not acceptable. No, I have to earn it. No, I have to, I have to be perfect, and then I'm acceptable. It's going to take the truth of the scriptures. It's going to take the truth of what God has said to change our perception of the universe, to change our perception of, of who we are and of he is. And that's where the heart of faith speaks and says, I'm not interested in what I think about what 
other people have, have done or said to me. I'm not interested in, in, in that, in my past experience. And I'm not interested in my, my thoughts about who God is. I want to hear what God has to say. Let me hear what the Lord will speak, the psalmist says. Let me hear what the Lord will speak. Listen, the psalmist who is writing does not have the blessing that we have. We have the complete and total revelation of all that God wants us to know about who he is and the way that he behaves toward us. We have the teachings of Jesus contained in these words. We have the writings of, of Paul that explain those things which are difficult and hard to understand. We have, we have the unfolding of the prophetic plan of God. We have the whole story here, and we can read through the Bible and say, what is God speaking to me in a way that the author of this psalm couldn't. We are so blessed with this word. And we can say, based on an assessment of this word, when we say, let me hear what God will speak, we can say with surety that he will speak peace to his people. He'll speak peace to his saints. And because that's what he does, verse 8, we should not turn back to folly. We don't change our thinking or our behavior back to the way it was before we knew this. We'll struggle, yes. We'll battle. But what we shouldn't do is allow ourselves to remain in a foolish mode of thinking. If what you're hearing about God's attitude towards you is like a ray of light, if you're like, yes, if only I could live in this understanding of God all the time, you can, but you need to fight for it. Does that make sense? You need, to, you need to nail these truths down. I love Psalm 55, verse 3. I was, I was working through things, and it just, it just you know, I thought of it. I believe that, 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 that if the word is within us, the Holy Spirit brings it up. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear me that your soul may live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my sure love for David. God loves me like he loved David. He does. He loves you like he loves David. Psalm 111 verse 9 says this about what God speaks to his people. He speaks peace to his people. Psalm 111 verse 9, he sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. We need to build our perception of God's character not on who we think he is, but on what he says to us. We build it on what the Bible tells us about Jesus and the character of God. We draw near to be restored and renewed based on his character rooted in the word. If we're not rooted in the word, then what we're going to be doing is we're going to fall victim to, to the illusion of our imagination or the lies of the devil. Think about the key moment that secures the goodwill of God towards us for all time. Okay? Think about who we are in Christ. Not merely about what Christ has done, but when we're in him, who we are in him. And think about what God has done to bring us to a place where we are in Christ, where, where we say, I am a sinner and I need a savior, and we look to him. Think about what God has done motivated by his character and by affection. 
when you start thinking and asking questions of what am I worth to God? Do I have worth? If God sets his affection on us, then we have worth and he will not leave us or forsake us. Think about the moment that secures it. I was, I was thinking, I'm going to drill down to, to the foundation. Can I find something that's like the perfect moment or perfect statement in the scriptures about this covenant that he'll make with us, his steadfast, sure love for David. And then I thought about the son of David and what he says in Matthew 26, 27. He took a cup. When he'd given thanks, he gave it to them and he said, drink of it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Why, why would God forgive me? It's, besi- it's, it's beyond me. It's got nothing to do with me. It's got everything to do with the one who spilled his blood to establish the covenant. The terms of the covenant that I'm involved in are not, are not written like, okay, Keith, you be perfect and God will love you. The terms of the covenant are written like this. God says, I will give you righteousness. And Jesus says, I will take their sins and they make the covenant and we receive the blessing of it. Normally when you make a covenant, it's like, hey, I want to borrow $250,000 to buy a house. And they're like, we will extract this amount of money from you for the rest of your life, right? And so the covenant feels like you get the house and the anxiety of how you're going to pay for it, right? For the rest of your, of, of your existence. That's the way covenants normally work. This is like, God says, we'll make a way, we'll establish um, the, the, your, your righteousness before God, and then we say, well, what do I need to do? What do, what, what do, I, how, do I, how do I pay for it? And the answer is you don't. You don't. You put your faith and trust in Christ, and all the blessings of it flow toward you. There's some amazing, beautiful imagery at the end of this passage. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. When I was, when I was reading and studying this, I thought steadfast love and faithfulness, these are God's character qualities. So this is, this is like, you know, up in, in, in heaven. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. But, but I don't think that's, that's, that's what's being said here because what, what the psalmist then goes on to say in verse 11 is faithfulness springs up from the ground, righteousness looks down from the sky. In, in, a, in, in our way of thinking of this is, is this is we're on the ground and God is, is up, right? His steadfast love meets our faithfulness. Oh, there you go, right? You dropped the requirement bomb on us. Right? I was, I, was, I was with you, and it was like it's free, and, and, it's, and it's, it, it, I've got to do nothing. But then you said I've got to be faithful, and now I think it's all down on me again. Right? Don't, don't go there yet. Because this is what I do. I'm like, oh, there it is. There's the requirement. There's the clause in the contract that says what I have to pay. His steadfast love meets our faithfulness. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. I love that. It's, it's nice. It's like sweet and family and, and home-like. Yesterday, um, Hank was outside playing in the backyard. He came in. He was cold. And so he came over to me. He was talking to me and telling me, like, first the snowball, and then this happened, and then I did this, and then I did that. And he was cold, and I, like, put my arms around him, and I gave him a dad kiss on the cheek, you know. And he looked at me, and he said, your lips are hot. <laughs> 
I was like, maybe your face is cold, right? Um, but it was just one of those moments where it was just like, it was just sweet to be together and to be at home, right? The idea of, 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 of God's righteousness and peace with him meeting one another in just a, a, a sweet moment of togetherness. Spurgeon says that the entire life of the Christian is lived underneath the smile of God. It's going to take some, 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 some disentangling of our bad thinking in order to remain there. Faithfulness, think about this, springs from the ground. It reaches up and righteousness looks down from the sky. It reaches down. Think about what God is doing in the scriptures. He is building a home and gathering his children to his gracious self. You might think, though, right, this is, this is where you, you start letting the air out of all the promises. You say, but I'm not faithful. Let me just drill home on this as we close. When you say, I'm not faithful, do you mean I'm not perfect? I'm not perfect I fail because failing is not being unfaithful in this economy, in this way of thinking. You don't have to be perfect for the covenant to work. You know why? Because Jesus is perfect, and he brings the perfection to the table, the perfection that we lack. What we need to do is to reach for it. You can't be perfect. You can't earn God's affection, but he gives it freely. And so what do we do? We draw near. What does the psalmist do in the psalm? He goes to God with his burden over the separation and says, will you make this right? Can we be at peace? That's it. That's faithfulness. He draws near. He repents when needed. He declares his dependence. He is focusing on rewiring his faulty thinking. Who knows how long the people have been out in you know, their own head thinking like God's punishing us, God's far from us. If they just draw near to him, the Bible says that if we repent and draw near, that he's right there. We find him and we seek him with our whole heart. We put our trust in Christ and not in ourselves. We embrace the truth and not our experience in the past of other human beings or our best thoughts on the subject. Instead, we say, let me hear what you will speak. And hearing what the scriptures say, we say, yes, that is good and true. And that's what I want. That's what it means to be faithful. God's not looking for us to be perfect in order for him to uphold his side of the covenant. He's looking for us to remain in a place where we say, I need you. Forgive me. I reach out to you. I'm, I'm drawing to you. I'm seeking to come near. And look at what the psalmist says at the end. He is convinced. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. The Lord will give what is good. This is the good news of the gospel. Yes, it is good news that Jesus comes to take away our sins. That is fantastic news. It is good news that we are given the gift of his righteousness. But bigger than that is the fact that God's character does not change. 
His attitude towards us does not change. He does not throw us away. He is good and can be relied upon like nothing else, like no one else. And so continue to trust in him. Your God is a good father who is creating peace and creating a home for us. Let's walk in the goodness of that truth. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to to spend this time in your word. We thank you that when Jesus comes to the earth to take our sins upon himself, he does so because of his character. He is a perfect image of who you are. We pray that you would cure us of, of separating the Godhead into the merciful one and the angry one, the wrathful one and the Savior. Instead, may we see both of you, Father and Son, as gracious and loving and kind and concerned for our salvation. We pray that we would lay hold of all the truth that you speak to us and that we would live in it and walk in the good of it, Lord. We thank you for your kindness toward us. We don't deserve what you give. But we thank you that our lack of deserving it doesn't mean that we just need to spend the rest of our existence suffering and paying for it. Instead, we can say, I am a child of God. I am righteous. God, my Father, loves me and cares for me and is faithful to me. And I can live and walk in that truth, knowing that good will come and that we are at peace with one another. Father, we thank you for your kindness toward us. We thank you for your word. We especially thank you for sending Jesus. We thank you for your grace and kindness. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing this closing song.